Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And we're so excited to have uh, a listener, an expert, dare I say, a new friend with us today. Kelly Downs, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It is our absolute pleasure. And we are so excited to, well, our listeners know that we have been talking a lot about Shakespeare lately and the supernatural elements of Shakespeare in our Supernatural Shakespeare series. And Kelly, we decided since we were wrapping up on that series, you know, uh, I feel like we've hit all of the big ones at this point. We wanted to talk to an expert about the the supernatural elements that Shakespeare includes in his plays. And then you reached out to us and we were like, well, this is perfect. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. Um, expert in one very niche area, I would say. But uh, yeah, I'm super excited. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about that expertise in that very niche part of Shakespeare's uh, genre? I am a theater maker, mainly an actor and director. And I've always had an affinity for Shakespeare. Uh, They're some of my favorite plays to work on, as well as creating new work, which is inspired by Shakespeare and other classic texts. Um, In 2019, I moved to the UK to pursue my master's degree in Shakespeare and creativity, which was a program that blended creative and academic approaches to Shakespeare's plays really interested in what those two approaches can teach each other. And we got to work in partnership with practitioners from the Royal Shakespeare Company, which was fantastic. Whoa. I wrote my thesis on uh, Shakespeare and astrology. So the way that Shakespeare uses astrology and the dramatic function of it across his plays. And all of it was grounded in the historical context of astrology at the time, Mm -hmm. because it was much more ingrained in daily life for his audience than it would be for modern audiences today. Uh, So there's some really rich resonances to the astrological references that he's using. But Kelly, in Shakespeare's time, like everyone didn't have CoStar on their phone. So I don't understand what you mean by it being more relevant. (laughs) No, they had the original CoStar. I'll get into, I'm sure, delve into, um, which were almanacs. Oh. The OG CoStar, the paper version. Because I'll get carried away with excitement as soon as I dive into the the logistics of almanacs. That's a podcast, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I did my my research at the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon, which was really interesting because I started out in that program coming at Shakespeare solely as a creative, or I I sort of saw myself solely as a creative. And I was really attracted to this program because it was kind of marrying the academic and the creative approaches to Shakespeare. So we did a lot of devised work, a lot of new theater based on Shakespeare. The lockdown period coincided perfectly with when I would have been sat writing my thesis anyway. So when I was deciding what I was going to have to sit down and write about for days on end, and that daunting task, I, I brought a a totally different thesis uh, to my advisor that I can't actually even remember what it was at this moment. So clearly it wasn't a very good idea. And she told me it wasn't a good idea. (laughs) Uh, So I went back and just sort of wrote down a whole list of all the things that could potentially interest me um, about Shakespeare and what I might enjoy. And this stuck out because I had never seen anyone else write about it. It's a really under-researched area. So that is what led me to this topic in particular. And I also do enjoy, I've got co-star on my phone, you know, I dabble <laughs> myself. I enjoy it as a, a modern woman as well. 
Kelly, I'm so interested to hear about your experience studying at Stratford-upon-Avon and just more broadly, you know, as Julie and I have been going through the series and talking about the plays and how people heard them at the time, I feel like uh, sites like the Reconstructed Globe and, you know, a lot like the Royal Shakespeare Center at Stratford-upon-Avon do a really good job of like embodying what it was like to attend those plays at the time. You can stand in the Reconstructed Globe and like look around at the stage and the colors and the music and the masks. But it feels really foreign to me what was in people's heads and what kinds of references were yeah. sort of sticking out to them. As high schoolers, we got a much better sense of the body jokes. That's one that I can definitely say my ears pick up on. <laughs> but I was so curious from your note about what the average, you know, viewer of these plays, to the extent we can know, was familiar with kind of like the celestial and astrological references in these shows. Yeah, absolutely. So the differentiation between astronomy and astrology is a really modern one. It was much more tied together. Astrology was much more ingrained in science and medicine, um, and it really informed the fabric of everyday life. Regardless of you know class, social standing, everyone was aware of certain astrological periods and influences that we just don't talk about anymore. So there were sort of two sides of astrology in the time. And the one that I focused on more, and I think is sort of the one that has lasted, um, is the, what we would be called judicial astrology. Mm. And this is astrologies that concerns individual people, individual questions. And we see it still with, you know, people calculating their birth chart. That's a, a form of judicial astrology, which at the time would have been called nativities. Mm. Um, so there are things like nativities or mapping the position of planets to try to find the best time to begin an enterprise or to answer a question. They might map the planets at the exact moment that the question was asked to consider the outcome. This knowledge was dispersed through the public through almanacs. And almanacs are one of the earliest forms of autobiographical writing that we have documented. Um, so it really boomed in Shakespeare's life, um, but it goes all the way back to like early 1400s. Mm. And so almanacs were these calendars slash diaries, really. And they would be printed based on your city so you could have really exact information about planetary movements. Um, there would be information about local fairs and festivals and uh, any notes about weather and agriculture that people might want to be aware of. And always a drawing of the zodiacal man, which is that drawing you've probably seen, but maybe don't know that you've seen where it's got all of the zodiac signs going down mm. the body, anatomizing astrological influence on the physical body. I haven't seen this image until right now, and it's the most buckwild should have ever seen. Amanda! This is, <laughs> yeah, it this is, is, right? wild. It's always a male body, which sure. is annoying. What can you but, do, you know. man? <laughs> And so almanacs, some statistic like one in three families in the 16th and 17th century would have purchased an almanac. And actually, we even hear it in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes. When the rude mechanicals are out uh, rehearsing their play and they need to know if the moon's going to shine so they'll have light. And Bottom quickly says, a calendar, look in the almanac, find out moonshine. And they just have <laughs> one to hand, which is a great example of like, clearly, that was just something that people had and engaged with on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So this was very much an item that like the everyday person would have. It wasn't like something that was reserved for the rich and people who could, I mean, it, probably for people who could read, but at the same time, like I'm sure they had people who could read that would read to other people if they had questions about what was in the almanac. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely, I'm, I'm sure there might be like better editions mm. or, you know, more um, detailed editions, um, more sought after. The, the collector's item mm. edition, the Kickstarter exclusive. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That would, you know, be reserved for someone of uh, more means or, you know, someone in the court or nobility at this time might have an astrologer in court. And that's sort of the leveled up version of the almanacs, if you will. But yeah, no, this was definitely something that urban and rural elite, non-elite, it was really for everyone. There's even like a sort of pun on the word almanacs. It's like all man, like everyone. Oh. There would be periods in the year and uh, celestial moments in the year that Shakespeare can write about with confidence everyone is going to be aware of. So if he signals it, it has an, a resonance that it has lost for us. That makes total sense. So everyone on some level kind of agreed that planets, stars, celestial bodies have an influence on us in some way. Mm -hmm. But there was always the naysayers. There are always the critiques as there are for these things always, mostly on religious grounds. I was going to say, it sounds like there are kind of like deities and bodies in the sky that aren't our one Christian heavenly father. Yeah. And like named after exactly, pagan yeah. things and pagan stories. And even if they Solstices, are the classics. Ooh, mm -hmm. A little pagan. Mm, yeah, a little pagan. Uh, and also you're, you're peering into God's will. Mm -hmm, How mm -hmm. dare you? How dare you endeavor to know God's will? Yeah, And we can't suffer a witch, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was definitely there. And there were, you know, plenty of preachers and priests at this time trying to say that they're trying to take you away from God. They're using the stars to distract you, to turn you away from God. But what I really love to see evidence of were the times in which there were religious leaders who also were astrologers and were able to write about how they can sit together in a really lovely way. So there was one really reputable Puritan preacher and dedicated astrologer in the 17th century. His name was John Booker. He had a little defensive astrology pamphlet that I, mm, I really enjoyed yeah. looking at. He wrote, the stars are letters and the heavens God's book, which day and night we may at pleasure look and thereby learn uprightly how to live. Amazing. Also rhyming things. We love that. We love to rhyme. Strong branding. Rhyming is strong branding. <laughs> yeah, right. It sticks in the mind as well if it rhymes. Mm -hmm. People are more likely to think about it and believe it. Easier to repeat. Indeed. And so the idea was that, you know, we're not turning away from God. You know, all of these bodies are God's creation. Mm -hmm. And by paying attention to them, studying them, you know, that brings us closer to God. Yeah. And I just thought that was really encouraging to see in this time period that there were people trying to think about the ways that different belief systems could coexist together. Yeah. So that was an interesting, an interesting thing to look at. And I mean, like, it is like the idea, like you just said, like, God put those things in place there and would not have made their 
patterns recognizable to human beings if we weren't supposed to be able to utilize those in some way. Like I could totally see the argument for like, if it was supposed to be unknowable, we wouldn't be able to track those and like understand that there's pattern to it. Exactly. We need to get that guidance from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And this this could be it. Even when it was taken out of a religious register, I think the question, the kind of hotly contested topic in the time period that we can catch Shakespeare engaging with specifically is the question of autonomy and free will Mm. and the fear of okay well if you if you're saying that some star was retrograde and that's why i acted the way that i did that that removes any uh, moral responsibility and and things could just get real messy real fast if everyone's just blaming things on movement of the stars 100%. 100%. Yeah, then why why ask for forgiveness? Why pay tithes? Why do lots of things? Why listen to a king mm-hmm. whose authority is sent down from God? That that can I, I, you're really making it clear to me how much of a like fundamentally kind of earth-shifting question that could yeah. be. Yeah. And I mean, it's also really interesting because this period of time was also when a lot of different sects of Christianity were dealing with the issue of predestination, like whether you were born to go to heaven or whether like the acts you do upon earth are the things that put you into heaven. So it's like a really interesting thing to be talking about the Zodiac and like the astrological movements of the celestial bodies, because that's something that the church itself was grappling with. Absolutely. And whether it you, it's like a religious thing or not for you, I think just from a philosophical standpoint, it was a big question for people. And I think we can see Shakespeare engaging with questions of fate and free will all the time. But there are some really cool examples of where he really sort of puts it in a celestial register, so to speak. I sort of started looking at this new archetype that I was recognizing in Shakespeare's plays, which I nicknamed the shaken skeptic. So you have um, examples of these characters who start out with a really strong, stubborn place of vehemently against astrology, mocking it even, and also repurposing it for their own gains Mm. to then have a moment of an aside to the audience to be like, these idiots, am I right? (laughs) But then by the end of the play, when they're sort of meeting their comeuppance, it gets brought back to their initial point of view, and it gets brought back to often their nativity. Mm. One example of this is Cassius in Julius Caesar. You know, the, the famous line, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. And that's really what catapults him on this path throughout the play of, you know, gaining followers, getting Brutus on his side, planning an assassination, really trying to take control, trying to get his autonomy back. And Mm -hmm. he often is using uh, Caesar's superstitiousness as a reason to be afraid of him. But by the end, when he finds himself in battle, he turns to a servant and he says, it is my birthday. This is the day Cassius was born. Mm. And he has this moment where he kind of is reflecting back on, on everything he's done, on these sort of messages that have been arriving to him throughout the play. I mean, the night before the assassination, he's out bare-chested in a tempest-dropping <laughs> fire, they call it, sort of like shaking his fist at lightning. He would rather be like struck in the heart than give in to the idea that he might not have total control over his destiny. And then by the end, he he 
is in battle and dies on his birthday. And Shakespeare kind of pulls this out of the story. It's, it's in the source text that the battle falls on Cash's birthday, but it's just sort of an offhand remark. Whereas this is a thing that Shakespeare pulls out and wants to kind of investigate further. Classic Leo, am I right? Oh, yeah. I don't know what sign he was, but, <laughs> you know. That's, Amanda, that's hilarious. Well, we'll get to that, because actually there's a, there's another cool thing that I'd love to tell you about where we actually do get a specific date that Shakespeare chooses to use. Ooh. You can't tease us. You got to tell us now. I know, I know. Let's do it. The source material for Shakespeare is something that I was really interested in because we can kind of catch his hand, right? Like we can catch purposeful decisions that he's making that are signaling something to the audience. Romeo and Juliet is one of, I would say, probably the most famous plays when it comes to sort of celestial language mm. and celestial references. They're the star-crossed lovers, right? That's yeah. where we get that phrase from. The star-crossed lovers, exactly. And that's, again, like right in the in the beginning of the play, you're sort of given the a prognostication, actually, like a, a prediction from the chorus. They tell you exactly what's going to happen. So do people hear that and think like, well, this isn't going to end well? Like, you know, is it sort of a given that like the stars have faded, that this is going to be an unhappy story and we're all just kind of waiting to see how it goes? Yeah, I mean, it's not uncommon for a prologue to be a spoiler. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is something that I, I happens a lot, which I don't really understand because it, it's kind of a bummer. But I mean, <laughs> to be fair, Romeo and Juliet isn't a, a totally original story anyway. So so the audience might have some context for this. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you are sort of like, oh, shit, like this is going to go wrong. And there's a sort of celestial color to it. But I think what we don't realize when we watch Romeo and Juliet today is that the phrase star-crossed lovers can actually be much more specific. I think we can actually pick out the star that is crossed, so to speak, <gasps> because Shakespeare makes this really purposeful intervention. So there's a couple of plays um, and poems that offer source material for Shakespeare, for Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. And one of them, the sort of main source that we can say with pretty much complete confidence was was his source for this is a poem from 1562 called something like the tragical history of Romeus and Juliet. Sure, why not? <laughs> right. And it's it's so much the source text that he's like lifting direct quotes. Like he's not even trying that hard to <laughs> pretend that he's not ripping off this poem. Well, Kelly, it's like, you know, when you see an adaptation on Netflix or something like that and you're like, okay, well, like how close to the source material are they actually going to get? Is it going to be like a direct like translation or are they going to take some liberties? And Shakespeare was like, no, I like the source material. Great. We're just going to, like, make it as is. I mean, other plays were about, like, biblical stories, you know? So it, it makes sense. Like, that's yeah. something that I was surprised about when I was first learning about Shakespeare. I was like, oh, what do you mean it's based on other things? What do you mean this isn't original? But it seems like the culture of it is like, yeah, everybody's kind of inspired by stuff that's already out there. And then you make it your own. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And they had to make money, right? Like, he had to write some plays quickly. Mm -hmm. And they're not brief. So he's like, if I can, you know, get some good quotes out of this, like, I'm going to go for yeah. it. Shakespeare, part of the content farm, you know? He's <laughs> yeah, in the right. minds with us. That's true. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's one really specific 
change that he makes, a deviation from the source text. And it's unusually specific. Like he really wants us to know about it. So all of the other Romeo and Juliets or kind of adjacent Romeo and Juliets very often set at Christmas time. The Capulet Ball is often like a Christmas feast. One of them, I think if there's an Italian poem uh, that he could be kind of drawing some inspiration from where Romeo actually asks for entry from Juliet's balcony because of the snow. Mm. Aw, cute. Adorable, very cute. But Shakespeare makes a purposeful choice to set Romeo and Ju- his Romeo and Juliet in the height of summer. Ooh. And we know this because in the very first scene where we meet Juliet, uh, she's speaking to her mother and her nurse, and they're talking about her birthday because TikTok, Juliet, you're 13. You better get yourself married. Um, <laughs> so mm-hmm. that biological clock's only got a good, oh, 22 years left on it. <laughs> <laughs> Running out. And so they're speaking about when Juliet's birthday and the nurse says, oh, Lammas Eve at night, shall she be 14? Mm-hmm. Lammas was a festival that we know was celebrated around the 1st of August. Um, So that means Juliet's birthday is probably July 31st-ish. So Juliet is a Leo, actually. Oh, of course she is. Nice, nice. Of course she is. I think many more Juliets should embrace the Leo energy of her. I think Mm -hmm. um, that would... Center stage, very involved, you know. (laughs) And we even know from conversation between the nurse and and Juliet's mother that Lammas is about two weeks away. Mm -hmm. So we know that we're sort of in mid-July when this play is unfolding. And for an audience that might have an almanac in their pocket or at home, we know then that we are in the dog days of summer. Not only a Florence in the Machine song. Yeah, right? Like, I know the dog days of summer as like a poetical phrase and as an excellent, Julia, to your point, Florence in the Machine song, but (laughs) do they have like more specific meaning than that? So the dog days reference the constellation Canis Major. And the sort of predominant star of Canis Major is Sirius. And Sirius is this bright star that they called it like the near double of the sun when you can see Sirius. It's one of the brightest stars in the sky. And the dog days are the period of summertime when Sirius can be seen for a couple of hours before the sun rises on the eastern horizon. Uh, it's called, the, it's like, it's heliacal rising. Um, so Canis Major and Sirius the star haven't been able to be viewed for quite some time. And this period of summer is when Canis Major comes back, basically. Mm-hmm. And the constellation of Canis Major is this big dog with a flaming, fiery mouth. And so the resonances for an audience is not only does it get physically very hot when Sirius is predominant, you need to worry about drought, you need to worry about your crops, they might die. Um, Fire. Fires. It's also a time of heated blood. So you've got heated temperatures, you've got heated sexual desires, you've got rash decision-making. And Shakespeare starts from the very beginning signaling to us that we're in the dog days of summer right away. Mm -hmm. We start out with a brawl in the streets where they're kind of making jabs at each other, talking about... biting thumbs for no reason. (laughs) Nobody pulled out a thumb. For no reason, right? (laughs) Put the thumbs away. Yes, And the nurse needs her fan to go out into town. It's so hot. 
in the next brawl, you know, Benvolio comes out to say, Mercutio, let's retire. The day is hot. Capulet's abroad. Uh, These hot days, mad blood is stirring. And so they're always talking about this this heated Mm -hmm. time of year that we're in. And so this feels really specific and a really purposeful choice that Shakespeare is making. Um, And we get lots of, of fire imagery. And Leo famously also a fire sign. So it makes a lot of sense to have Juliet, who is already being influenced by these dog days of summer, is also like ruled by fire as her sign. So is going to make these bad decisions no matter what, if the Zodiac and fates are correct. Yes, she is ruled by the sun. So, so true. And so I I think often when, when people talk about Romeo and Juliet and talk about the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, they talk about they're all oh, they're dumb teenagers and they're they're teenagers that make bad decisions and it can be sort of a, a reason that people hate the play and i think instead when we awaken ourselves to this resonance that is lost on us the tragedy becomes much more rich because they're not just dumb teenagers. They're victims of, of a celestial influence that they might not even be aware of. And it feels much grander. It feels more cosmic and a richer way of, of looking at the plot. Oh, yeah. No, 100%. Like, it's a real wrong place, wrong time, right? Like, you could second guess a million ways. Like, what if Juliet didn't have this predisposition? What if this was in the, you know, nadir of winter Mm. and not at, like, the hottest days of the year? Mm. It reminds me a lot, actually, of Do the Right Thing, the Spike Lee movie, which is an incredible New York City film um, set on the hottest day of the year where everything just kind of goes exactly wrong to lead to a bunch of stuff that any other day, when it wasn't 110 Mm -hmm. degrees, everybody would have let slide. That makes for such an interesting premise and such interesting drama. Yeah. It's definitely making me look at Romeo and Juliet in a new light, which I really appreciate because, like you said, it's not my favorite play. (laughs) It is one that we had to do in high school, one we read in high school, but it's never been, like, my absolute favorite. But now knowing that, like, so much of that was flavored by Shakespeare's idea of, like, predetermined uh, celestial bodies and, like, having it set in that time period is so interesting and so cool. I love that. Absolutely. And um, there's something I think I got a little carried away with in my research, but I think mm. I think I'm on to something. And so I'll tell you about it and you tell me if, I, if it's too much of a stretch. Now, Kelly, how about you tell us about this just as soon as we get back from a refill? That sounds great. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, this is Julia and welcome to The Refill. First, of course, we have to start by thanking our newest patrons, bringing them into the fold, Laura, Mila, and Izzy Wizzy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You join the ranks of our supporting producer-level patrons like Alicia, Ann, Ginger Spurs Boy, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, Neaslekins, Lily, Matthew, Nathan, Phil Fresh, Rico Like, Captain Jonathan, Malachi Cosmos, Sarah, and Scott, and of course, our legend-level patrons, Ariana, Audra, Bex, Morgan H, Sarah, and BME Up Scotty. And you too can sign up for our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash spirits podcast and getting cool rewards like, hey, did you know you can get ad-free episodes? As much as I'm sure you really love hearing my and Amanda's voices on the refill, you can just skip our ads by donating on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash spirits podcast, sign up for the ad-free tier and get ad-free episodes. Hey, 
your time is important and we understand that. And so we provide ad-free episodes for our patrons and you can get those right now. Again, patreon.com slash spirits podcast. I also love to give you a recommendation. And this week I'm going to say, hey, have you downloaded the Libby app, put in your local library, library card and listen to some audiobooks for free there? Because I've been doing that a lot lately. I have been really enjoying the Imperial Ratch trilogy on my audiobooks. It's read by a fabulous actress who does some incredible voice work. I'm really, really impressed. And I just love my Libby app because, hey, it's got like a sleep function that like it'll stop playing if you like to listen to audiobooks before you go to sleep. I like to listen to them when I wake up in the morning and have a little bit of insomnia and then want to go back to sleep and I'll just set a little 30-minute timer. It's great. Hey, Libby, check it out. It's a great app. I also would love to tell you about what's been going on here at Multitude. And hey, have you checked out Games and Feelings? Games and Feelings is an advice podcast about games. Join question keeper Eric Silver and a revolving cast of guests as they answer your questions at the intersection of fun and humanity, since, you know, you gotta play games with other people. And they talk about every single type of game, video games of all types, tabletop games, party games, laser tag, escape rooms, game streams, D&D podcasts, the companies and the workers that make these games, and anything else you can think of. So like, for example, how do you convince people who have only played Monopoly to try that new board game that you grabbed from the game store? Or is an escape room a good thing? third date? What makes a video game cozy? And do they have any recommendations? They answer any and all questions as long as they're games related. So if you like what you hear and want to level up your emotional intelligence stat, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. And new episodes are every Friday. Check it out. Games and Feelings. This episode of Spirits is brought to you by Wild Grain. Wild Grain is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less with no thawing required. And the team at Wild Grain just sent me a new box. There are some delicious things inside. Let me tell you about it. I am in love with the strawberry rhubarb turnovers. I had them for brunch basically the other day when Jake gets up earlier than me. And all of a sudden I smell pastry in the air while I'm still laying in bed and I know that he has broken out the wild grain box. I also really, really love their croissants, which I will tell you a little bit more about later, but they are fantastic and a really like easy way to have something freshly baked ready for when I have people over that I wasn't expecting. And the pastas, let me tell you, I am spoiled when it comes to pastas and Wild Grain has provided some amazing pastas in the past. And this particular box had some really good ones. And you can now fully customize your Wild Grain box so you can get any combination of bread, pastas, and pastries that you like. If you want a box of all bread, all pasta, or all pastries, you can have it. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com spirits to start your subscription. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash spirits. That's wildgrain.com slash spirits, or you can use the promo code spirits at checkout. 
We are also sponsored this week by Ravensburger Puzzles. Indulge in the timeless pleasures of assembling Ravensburger's extraordinary jigsaw puzzles. Ravensburger's premium quality puzzles are crafted with meticulous attention to detail, bringing you an unparalleled puzzle solving experience. And with a rich heritage dating back to 1883, Ravensburger Puzzles have become an integral part of families' lives across generations. Share the joy of puzzling with friends and family, knowing that your cherished puzzles will stand the test of time. Enjoy a mindful moment and immerse yourself in a world of captivating colors, stunning imagery, and intricate designs that will delight people of all ages. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly thanks to a wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. You can start small and then work your way all the way up to over 40 thousand pieces are you up for the challenge shop ravensburger on amazon today that's ravensburger's puzzles and finally this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. now i have mixed feelings about the approaching end of the year i i like the holidays i don't typically struggle with seasonal blues but once the days start getting a little shorter and i think about like the end of the year and it's approaching so quickly and what have i done this year that like actually is something i can say like oh i did this it stresses me out a little. I'm not going to lie. It stresses me out a lot. And this time of year can be a lot. So it is natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all of the stress and change, something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded, and to give you the tools that you need to manage everything going on. And I know that as the holidays start to approach and I think about traveling and seeing my family and spending time with them, it's definitely something that I'm going to be talking to my therapist about. And it has helped me a lot in the past going into this holiday season full of anxiety and being able to talk through that and understand where that anxiety is coming from. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com spirits today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the episode. We are back. And Kelly, something I always like to ask our guests, and especially now we're talking about the the dog days of summer and how hot it is outside. What is a cocktail that you've been enjoying that maybe uh, might refresh you during the dog days of summer or just, you know, keep you warm in the the middle of winter when apparently Romeo should have been asking for Juliet's hand? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I have to say, I am very glad, as I'm sure many of the the citizens of Verona would agree, that <laughs> summer is ending. Uh, it is firmly autumn here in the UK, uh, which I am very pleased about, uh, because it means that we're entering hot toddy season, Yes, which mm. is one of my favorite things to enjoy. So I am looking forward to um, getting to make a hot toddy and curl up with 
Puck the cat on the couch. <laughs> Puck the cat. Puck the cat. Oh, so cute. <laughs> oh, my God. I am not a whiskey person in general. So I have created what I call my um, my gin hot toddy, which is Ooh. usually just like a nice herbal tea, like a hibiscus tea with like a dash of very floral gin in it. And that is what I do instead of a hot toddy. That sounds delicious. And I will have to try that. I would recommend it. I think it's great. I had my first hot toddy of the season uh, last or this past weekend uh, at my local brewery because they mm. had it like on the menu. They started making whiskey aged in their own beer barrels, which is very exciting. Cool. Um, and so they have like their house whiskey. And it took the bartender like 15 minutes to make this drink because like the kettle had a boil. She like <laughs> studded little lemon slices with cloves. Like it was so oh. adorable. I tipped her like 50%. It was yeah. incredibly satisfying. You should appreciate Appreciate the effort. And I'm like, this is my hot toddy winter, baby. I love that for you. It's the kind of thing that I hate to ask for in a bar because I know that it's the most annoying order. But easy enough to make it home when you have the time, you know? Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we left off with a, a little bit of a cliffhanger. Kelly, give us the deets. Yes, it's probably the, the nerdiest cliffhanger of all time. But I hope I found the right audience for it. I love it. A nerdy cliffhanger is perfect. So I noticed something when I was looking at Romeo and Juliet thinking about the image of Canis Major, this dog with a fiery mouth. There, I found one reference mm -hmm. to Canis Major as a dog with a flaming torch in its mouth. Ooh. And I was like, oh, that's a bit interesting. That's a little different from what I've seen. And the amount of times that Shakespeare uses the word torch in Romeo and Juliet is bananas. Really? Yeah, it's very weird. So he uses the word itself nine times, and he uses the word light in reference mm. to a torch another nine times. Huh. And I looked at, like, every other play, and the only other one that I saw that word come up in was, like, Macbeth a few times, but it's usually in the stage directions. Like, it was a serious outlier. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, dark castle rooms that people have to walk into with a torch in Macbeth. Yeah, but they're not talking about it. Yeah, right? Shakespeare's <laughs> not, like, writing about, oh, and then, you know, Macbeth holds this torch up while he murders Duncan, you know, like, it's... Yeah. There's a lot of Romeo asking to bear, bear the torch, give me the torch. He comes into the Capulet's ball saying... I'll be the torchbearer. I'm mm. I'm not for this ambling. And the the references to torches are also really clustered around Capulet's party where Romeo mm -hmm. and Juliet meet. And when he sees her, oh, she doth teach the torches to turn bright. Ooh, Ooh damn. Yeah. And again, at the very end of the play, when Romeo thinks Juliet is dead in a tomb and he's he's going to be with her body. That's when torches come up again. And so I, I started thinking about how Shakespeare might be using this image of Canis Major almost as like this beacon of disaster that bookends mm. the play a bit. Romeo coming in as the torchbearer, kind of marching into the start of his downfall at Capulet's party. And then coming back at the end, once again, asking his servant for a torch to come into the tomb. And once the kind of cacophony of chaos kicks off at the end, after Romeo and Juliet um, have both committed suicide, all of the servants that are coming to, like, Friar Lawrence and the servants coming to find them, they're using the word torch as a marker for 
the tomb. They're they're saying over there what where the torches are, that's the place. Right. Mm-hmm. Friar Lawrence says something like, What torch is yon that vainly lends his light to grubs and eyeless skulls? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And it, it feels like there's a real choice here to mirror Canis Major's fiery torch in his mouth and place it firmly on the ground where the disaster and and tragedy is happening. The specificity of the dog having a torch in its mouth, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's something that I, I wasn't able to find a lot of other people talking about. Is it a torch? Is it just that he like breathes fire? Like what exactly um what exactly is going on here? Mm-hmm. But there was a, a real outlier in Shakespeare's language. And because he's already made such a purposeful deviation from his source, I wanted to really take seriously any sort of other outliers that I noticed. The choice. So yeah, t- torch imagery all over the place in, in RJ. Who would have guessed? There's also some more just fun facts about the dog days. There's some really wild superstitions of this time period that I think Shakespeare's engaging with. Oh, Kelly, I, I literally thought until right now, it's like, oh, all the dogs are panting because it's really hot. So like, I, please <laughs> fill my empty head with knowledge. There mm-hmm, is so mm-hmm. much. Yeah, I, w- I would not have, if I hadn't gone on this deep dive, um, I would not have known either that it, there's a 17th century superstition that lasted a while that during the dog days, uh, the menstrual blood of virgins becomes poisonous. What? And <laughs> yeah, right? Like, what? Also, wh- how would anyone know? Why? What? Why is anyone drinking that? I mean, it seems know? very convenient for poisoning uh, people in your life that you need to get rid of. That is fair. But also, on, on a less specific note, that just in general, it was dangerous to have sex during the dog days. And it was dangerous to take medicine. And so when we think about major plot points of Romeo and Juliet, Needing to consummate a marriage. Taking a poison. Yes. Taking a medicine to go into a death-like sleep. These feel like things that he's signaling to. And not only has the audience already been told from the the get-go in the prologue that that things are going to go badly for these two lovers, but they also have this added knowledge of what the dog days were, what that meant. And even hearing Juliet's name, her name is synonymous with her nativity. She's born in July. Mm. An audience member that's keenly listening would be reminded of her nativity and the the time of year that we're in every time they hear her name. Which is said so much, perhaps Mm, more than any other name in Shakespeare. (laughs) It feels like one of those, like when you're reading a fantasy series or something like that, and you look at that name and you're like, that seems a little on the nose. Like, you don't have to, like, name your your bad guy, like, Malodious. And you're like, (laughs) what are you doing? (laughs) We get it. Come on. (laughs) But this, this torch imagery is really resonating for me because... You know, like we were describing before the the break, like it it just seems like kindling about to go up. Yeah. It seems like lighting a cigarette in a hospital. Like like that's the kind of like charged atmosphere, spiritually, celestially, weather wise, that makes me like on edge as I see these people do things like have sex, like engage in poisons, like you know drink those poisons. Absolutely, and and fire in general comes up a lot as well. Juliet has this gorgeous speech when she's waiting for Romeo to to sneak into her room so they can consummate their marriage. Gallop apace, you fiery-footed steeds, towards Phoebus's lodging and is invoking this image of the fiery chariot bringing the sun in, which is a tragic story of 
a, a tragic myth that again goes very wrong for Phoebus's son who who kind of get, loses control of the fiery wagon but but she's invoking this image with ecstasy and joy and it feels like an example of Shakespeare showing us the dangers of not taking astral influences seriously you know whether wherever you stand on the spectrum in this time period of how much you engage with it or or what you believe about it it's dangerous to be blissfully unaware completely and it, it feels like that's sort of where the tragedy lies for these two is that there's these constant signals around them of the conditions that they're in that is going to lead to their demise but they're completely oblivious to it. They get close, you know? The, Romeo has these moments where he's like, I had this crazy dream last night that, you know, I, I, <laughs> I my lady kissed me and I, I like woke me from death. And Juliet, as he's going away to Mantua, is like, oh, I have a prophetic soul. It's as if I see you in the bottom of a tomb, right? Like they get so close. Ha ha, isn't that funny? Kiss, kiss, oh, see you later. Guys. <laughs> see you later. Probably fine, though, right? Probably fine. Nothing to worry about. Probably fine. It's not like we're characters in a play or anything. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. <sighs> they, get, they get very close to realizing how, where they are, what's happening around them. And there's just the audience is sitting there, you know, feeling the heat, hearing it constantly and and watching these two just continue marching on and i think that puts the it into a much more uh, tragic register than just like oh it's a story about dumb kids that made bad decisions <laughs> thousand percent so yeah, hundred percent. Oh my gosh! Ah, oh, this is this is making me want to read Romeo and Juliet, which I don't think anybody's ever yeah. done. Yeah, <laughs> never really wanted to is the case. Yeah, it gets yeah. ruined so often for people, which is why it was really. Mm. I think I, I I enjoyed writing this chapter the most. I think because I was so desperate to find something new and interesting about this play that might make people give a shit about mm. it. <laughs> and I think you did. At least for us, you certainly did. Like when we were talking about what plays we wanted to do for the supernatural Shakespeare, like Romeo and Juliet didn't even cross my mind because I'm like, ah, oh, it's just a bunch of dumb kids making stupid decisions. <laughs> like, you know, we don't need to think about anything in that play. And then you're like, the zodiac, though, the astrological signs. Yeah, well, like, it's damn. It's um, you know, a testament to how how much goes into the printing of these almanacs and the types of things mm -hmm. that were um, being communicated to people. It wasn't just there's an eclipse and you got to know about that or the moon's full yeah. the moon's new there's a retrograde you know it, it, there were other even more involved celestial seasons that we don't talk about anymore so you, so you wouldn't pick up on any references that Shakespeare's making to them that's wild that's so wild <laughs> like we, we talked about that too in like the Macbeth episode how like the context of the time is really important to understanding certain aspects of the play like the fact that King James was writing his book on witches during the time mm. period the uh, the mirror at the end of the line of kings supposed to be like reflecting King James in the audience like it's really interesting to know like oh, we're missing such a key element when we're just reading these books without any, or reading these plays without any historical context. So it's it's so wonderful to be like, yeah, everyone knew about 
the astrological signs and the zodiac and the movement of the celestial bodies and that impacts how they saw this play like yeah. it just it, it would never have struck me as a thing until we started doing a little more research into these and until you started like blowing my mind with all these details <laughs> i really like to think about as well the the globe stage the awning bit that comes over the the stage painted on the ceiling would have been images of the zodiac stars moons uh moons there's one moon kelly but phases of the moon yeah phases of the moon the planets um so that was there painted on the ceiling of every single performance like that was a background for every play that you saw there oh yeah and it still is because mm -hmm. they've done a lovely job of, of reconstructing what it would have looked it's beautiful but, um but yeah it's it's really it's a backdrop of everything that you would have seen on that stage which I think speaks to how it, it was it was sort of the backdrop just in, in people's lives in general. I mean, they'd consult astrologers um, at the same time that they were consulting physicians. They would use mapping the planets to make diagnoses for people. It was it was just part of life in a way that it isn't anymore. And I know you mentioned, too, that uh, this is, again, a whole chapter of your thesis. But can you tell us briefly a little bit about some of the headlines, the Celestial News headlines that may have affected the writing and reception of Oswald at Enswell? Yes, absolutely. In addition to movements of celestial bodies being a big part of people's day-to-day -day life, any sort of changes or um, unexpected things obviously would have been much more talked about in this time period. Uh, there's some really amazing synchronicities in All's Well That Ends Well. Mm -hmm. So we know that Shakespeare was likely working on All's Well That Ends Well, like early 1605. Okay. And in the year before, kind of late 1604, so leading up to the time that Shakespeare is writing All's Well That Ends Well, there was a massive supernova. Whoa. And this, yeah, this would have looked like to people in this time period, like a new star just appeared in the sky. Okay. Right. Which would have been pretty jarring because up until this point, they... they uh, those have always been there? There's no new ones? Those have always been there. I thought those were sort of like fixed in space you know why so, would they change yeah <laughs> and this this supernova was so bright that they could see it during the day whoa um, so this yeah this would have been talked about it was a story for people and another uh sort of celestial movement that happens leading up to all is well being written is um mars going into retrograde which happens you know, fairly often enough, it's like every two years or so, but this has a kind of unique connection to the play because All's Well That Ends Well, I, th I think it's Shakespeare's attempt to have a little bit of a more nuanced approach with the concept of astral influence. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of astrologers that were saying at the time, you know, it it's, it's not that you are, there's this unyielding power that the stars have. They give inclinations, but it's up to the individual what you do with that. And in All's Well That Ends Well, he starts to really play with that because our sort of lead heroine of All's Well That Ends Well is Helena, and she is in love with a count, and she is, as she calls it, of baser stars. Mm. And it 
the it's sort of the story of her trying to change her stars, really. When she's talking about Bertram right in the beginning of the play, she says, "'Twere all one that I should love a bright particular star and think to wed it." And oh. I, adorable, right? Oh my yes. gosh, I cry. But th- it's coming off the back of an actual bright particular star that has just been at the forefront of everyone's minds. And, you know, could be a, a sort of scary thing to see, might have influenced conversations about, you know, what does it mean? Is it a sign of something? Will it, will it have influence? And and shortly after, we get a little bit more of, of Helena telling us her woes and and uh, lamenting her uh, unrequited love, we meet this character that Shakespeare has invented. He's he's added this of to course. the play himself called Paroles. And if you have strong feelings about how to say the character's name, please don't <laughs> yell at me. I don't speak French. And that's how it scans an iambic pentameter. So that's what we're Great, going with. Great, we love it. Everything sounds a little <laughs> different in Shakespeare as we discovered, yeah. like, you know, just in the past <laughs> in general. Um, but Paroles... Immediately as he's coming in, Helena is like, oh, this buffoon, you know, I love him, (laughs) but he's kind of a liar and he's like boasting all the time. He says he's a fuckboy. He's a fuckboy. He says he's like, he's this amazing soldier, but nobody really can confirm that. He comes in. They have this really fun, like snappy scene, um, quipping back and forth. And he, he asks her, Oh, are you meditating on virginity? Oh, I think everyone thinks about all the time, meditate on virginity, sure. Right? She just runs with it, though. She's like, yeah, let's talk about it. Um, And they have this very fun, silly scene full of puns where he's kind of talking her in circles a little bit about the concept of virginity. Right before he leaves, Helena says to him, you were born under a charitable star. And they have this conversation about Parola's nativity. And he reveals, I was born under Mars. Mm. And Helena says, oh, when he was retrograde, I think. And she starts kind of making fun of him about, <laughs> you know, you know, Mars is supposed to be the planet of war and valor. And he's proudly saying he was born under Mars. And she says, no, uh, when he was retrograde, because you go backwards in a fight. <gasps> Woo! Um, nice. <laughs> yeah, zing. Damn, dude. Got him. <laughs> Incredible thing. But kind of to, to bring it back to this this topic of Mars and retrograde, um, again, it's a, this very specific thing that Shakespeare brings into the world of the play. As he was writing, we had a Mars in retrograde that the path of its retrograde actually circled Virgo the Virgin. And so it feels like this wow. personification of, uh, you know, you have Mars going backwards talking Helena in circles about her virginity. And it just is this really, you know, we can't say for sure, of course, maybe it is just a a wild coincidence, but he's sort of using stars as a marker and representatives of fate Mm. in All's Well quite often. Helena talks about it a lot. She's always sort of talking about the spheres that she's placing other characters in. And so it, it feels very alive for the characters and it was alive at the time. And we get to see Paroles as a sort of native retrograde Martian, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak, <laughs> um, because there was the concept of, you know, planets have these inclinations. There's fortunate and there's unfortunate. Mm. And 
it's up to the person if the inclinations of a planet become virtues or if they become vices. Mm. Perolis feels like this example of someone who is taking astral influence. It's being placed on them in an unfortunate way. Mm. Mars, the unfortunate qualities of Mars. Sorry, I'm using that word because um, there was a 1590-ish astrological discourse that was printed that said each planet has unfortunate and fortunate qualities Mm -hmm. and you're more likely to get the unfortunate when they go backward. Mm. Paroles goes on to almost go down the checklist verbatim of unfortunate Martian qualities like He's getting into fights all the time for no reason. He's lying to people. He's, you know, boasting about his um, feats in battle that no one can confirm. Mm. And then when his friends play a prank on him and and pretend to ambush him when they're away in war. Classic um, bros. Your bros got to keep the spirits high (laughs) during wartime. Pretend to ambush your friends. (laughs) He immediately gives everyone up. So they they sort of like blindfold him and he like falls to his knees quaking, saying like, I'll tell you everything. I'll tell you their plans. I'll, you know, I'll reveal locations, whatever you need to know. Just don't kill me. A real backwards Mars situation. Mm -hmm. Real retrograde. Exactly. Really, really goes through all of these um, qualities. And we we get sort of the, the two sides of the coin of, you know, Helena respecting astral influence, trying to make the most of it, kind of like yielding to their um, their presence and acknowledging them, but um, trying to work with that energy in a positive mm-hmm. way. And then on the flip side, you have the the poster boy for uh, Mars in retrograde in Parolis and um, the, the wacky antics. <laughs> and I mean, I, I shouldn't say it that lightly. He betrays all of his friends. And if that was a real situation, that would be yeah, horrible. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, it's not a tragedy, so it's fine. <laughs> but it's not a tragedy. It's in the title. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the other thing too. Yeah, all's well that ends well. And Helena says it a couple of times and it it really, um, it feels like a a sort of mantra for her of, you know, she's going to work with what she's been given and and turn it around and Mm. bring it back to, she has a, a lovely moment where she's hatching her plan and of how she's gonna how she's gonna win Bertram's affection, what she's gonna do next. And she says, our remedies often ourselves do lie, which we ascribe to heaven. The faded sky gives us free scope, only doth backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. Wow. Damn. Yeah, it's like acknowledging that there there is a faded sky, but you can have a dialogue with it. You know, you can you can mm-hmm. work with that and change your fate. What an incredible note. <laughs> Kelly, I want you to take me through every Shakespeare and tell me all of the, the astrological signs, but we do not have the time for that, I unfortunately. Know. Another time. Oh, another time, perhaps. It'll have to be another time because you were also born under some faded signs in Oneida, New York. And oh so we're going to have to talk about that uh, at some point yes, in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is a... a, a buck wild place for sure oh boy oh boy is it we'll have you on for urban legends we will talk about silver it'll be great did my first shakespeare play at the united community mansion house (gasps) yes oh my gosh it was written in the stars (laughs) that i was meant to tell you two specifically about all of these things (laughs) yes everything lined up to this moment right here 
Well, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about astrology and Shakespeare and all the supernatural elements involved in those things. Is there a place on the internet that people can find you if they want to talk to you about those things? Yes, please do. Um, It's very hard for me to find an audience uh, for this niche stuff. So if you want to talk to me about it, please do. You got them right here. Um, Yes, you can find me on Instagram at kelly.m.downs. And I don't have any exciting projects in the works at the moment, but I have some ideas that I would love to connect with some like-minded people about. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you are interested in queer Shakespeare, if you're interested in storytelling as a way to reconnect with the natural world, and if you happen to be a burlesque performer who enjoys Shakespeare or wants to try some Shakespeare, I have uh, some ideas that I'd love to chat to you about. So hit me up. Amazing. This is the audience for Uh, you. I know we have burlesque performers. They are listening to this episode. I think you're going to find some new friends. Come talk to me, please. Let's do Shakespearean burlesque. Uh, I have ideas. Incredible. (laughs) Please invite us. We're excited. Yes. Kelly, thank you again. And remember, listeners, next time you are asking the stars to hide their fires and not show your dark and deep desires, stay creepy. Stay cool. Stay cool. 